good. That's always a good principle. Okay, let's get started here. We're going to begin in, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 15. So you can open your Bibles to Genesis 15. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. Anybody need a Bible? I think we're all set. Okay, can you go close that door for me? We don't want any music in here. Um, Definitely none of that song. Joyful, joyful. We don't want to be joyful today, do we? So, uh, Genesis 15. That's right. We're going to pray, and then we'll get started with this next story in Abraham's life. Um, There's a bit of a, it's a continuation, but this is really the, um, if people know the stories of Abraham, this is probably one of the the best known. So I'll try to um, give you some kind of, second layer of the onion stuff, but most of you will will have heard this story. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the life of Abraham, for um, the blessings that you gave to him, and that also through him and his offspring, Jesus Christ, have come down to us through the ages. We pray that his life uh, would serve as an inspiration, as an example, um, and as a guide for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, Genesis 15, we're going to be talking more about the seed of Abraham today, uh, but just so we remember, what has, where have we been so far? What, did, what just got done in the story of Scripture here? There's this business of Melchizedek, and who is Melchizedek? Just shout it out, you don't have to raise your hand. He's a priest king, right? A king and a priest. And Melchizedek is uh, the king of Salem, which will one day be Jerusalem. Salem, Jerusalem, okay? And uh, why does Melchizedek bless Abram? What has Abram just got done doing? Winning a, a war, right? So to, I mean, there was probably multiple skirmishes, um, but Abram has just got done saving Lot. Who else does he save? He doesn't just chase down uh, this Keter Lamer and say, give me back Lot and you keep the rest. Who else does he save? Who, who are the cities, though? You've got to give me the name of the cities. Yeah, Abram saves Sodom and Gomorrah. He saves the people of Sodom and the people of Gomorrah. That's significant right? Because that this isn't the last time we're going to hear about Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the Lord comes and visits Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a little bit of a backstory, right? It's not a surprise visit out of the blue. There's already some background, okay? But we'll talk about that when we get to that uh, story. So Abram's just gotten done defeating this guy named Keter Lamer. And uh, what do you suppose is on Abram's mind? Try to put yourself in Abram's shoes. You've just gotten done chasing down this king. You defeated him with your mighty men, and you've come back home. Now think like the king of a city-state. What would be on your mind? Build a wall. Build a wall. Why? Why Who do you want to keep out? Who are the bad guys? 
Be more specific. The people you just beat, right? When you go out and you punch somebody in the face, they're going to come back and punch you in the face. Isn't that the rule of the playground, Adam? Right? And when they come back, they're going to hit you harder. That's the way kings play. So Abram is at least, we, we don't have this written down here, but it's not a, a stretch to imagine that there's at least some concern. Hey, you know what? I just defeated these guys. What if they go home, round up a bunch of new troops, and come back? Right? So I want you to just to have that in your background because that's going to help us make sense of what God says to Abram here. Okay? And so let's get started in chapter 15. We're fresh off a battle. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, why would God tell him not to be afraid? What would he be afraid of? All those kings that you just beat, right? I, I don't have any you know, huge point to make here other than I want you to see that these things are not just sort of random, right? They, it's one coherent narrative. It's one coherent thing. So God says, don't be afraid. Why does God say, I'll be your shield? What's he going to protect him from? The bad guys, right? Keterlamer, all the other nations that you just got done uh, fighting with. Your reward shall be very great. Now, let's see if we can connect up the idea of reward. What rewards have been promised to Abram? That he'll be a great nation. So, yeah, the land. Now, which of these has Abram received? Has he gotten the land? Mm, kind of, right? In what way does Abram have the land? Okay, he just got done beating all those guys. He's got his little you know, plot of land there, his 40 acres. Um, at Where is he living these days? I think the Oaks of Mamre, which is in Hebron. So he's living in the land. He's got some kind of control of the land. But, you know, if you asked Abram, hey, have you inherited everything God said he would give you? What do you think Abram would say? (laughs) Not even close, right? And not only that, but at the end of that battle with Keterlamer, do you remember what the king of Sodom said to him? Look back at the end of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 21. Who would read that for us? Go ahead, Mike, read it nice and loud. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Keep going. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Okay, 
Okay, so Abram, not only has he not received anything from God, but, or I shouldn't say not anything, he hasn't received the land from God, but when he had the chance to get a reward from the king of Sodom, what did he say? Hard pass, right? I don't get things from you. I don't get things from the Sodomites. I get them from God, okay? And it's, it's even better than that because not only does he, uh, he goes to battle and he gets no reward for it, but remember what he did with Melchizedek? Melchizedek gave him a blessing. What did Abram do? He gave a tithe, a t- a tithe to Melchizedek. So <laughs> what did he gain from his battle? He got a blessing. He got a blessing from Melchizedek, but he lost, right? It was a, if you were doing a, um, uh, what, a balance sheet, right, we've got a net loss. It's a deficit for Abram. Why did he give Melchizedek that tithe? Because he recognized him as the king, kingly priest. Okay. And so, but was there any, did God tell him, you have to do this, Abram? Was there some kind of law? Was he giving because he had to? Oh, I don't really want to do this, but I guess I have to. Here, 10%. Not at all. Go, go to Psalm 110 real quick. This is uh, important for how we think about um, tithes and offerings and such. Psalm 110. You'll, you'll know this psalm a little bit. Psalm 110 starts this way. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, who's, who's writing this psalm? David. So, the Lord says to my Lord. Who is the Lord here? God, right? Who is David's Lord? I thought David's Lord was God. So, God says to God. How does that work out? Is he talking to himself? This is what we call the Holy Trinity, right? The, Old Test- the, the Holy Trinity was not unknown to the Jews. They might not have been able to, um, you know, say the Nicene Creed with you. They wouldn't know the name Jesus. What? Jesus? Right? But they're already in the Old Testament. There are already passages like this that show, oh, you know what? God can speak to God. The Lord says to my Lord. And here's what the, we would put it this way. The Father says to the Son. God the Father says to his Son, Jesus. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Kind of like Abram did when he chased down all those other guys. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will... Offer themselves because they have to. Your people will give a tenth, they will pay a tithe because that's the rule. They have to. Is that what it says? Your people will offer themselves how? Willingly, freely, without any compulsion. That's like Abram. This is a picture of um, Abram with Melchizedek. So your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Now, how many of you like obedience? Are any of you happy to obey things? How many of you prefer disobedience? 
<laughs> yeah, I prefer disobedience, right? I was listening to a song yesterday. Um, I don't need no stranger telling me how to live my life. Um, I was singing it with my daughters. Probably not the best song to sing with my daughters. But that's the American spirit, right? Nobody tells us what to do. We don't pay uh, taxes without representation. We don't listen to that old king, which was it, George III? King George, isn't that the one at the time of the revolution? Come on, we got to know our American history, don't we? Yeah, Ray, what is it? George III? Yes. yes, thank you. Okay, I'm not just making things up. Um, so there is deep in us, as Americans, an ethos of, I don't obey anything that I, that I don't have to. Right? We like our loopholes. Uh, but it's not just an American thing. This is uh, what we call the sinful human nature. Inside every one of us, there's a rebel. Right? We rebel against God. But here, when the Lord rules over you, he rules, and the result is a willing spirit. I, I want to obey. Um, I was... this. This is something that um, the Baptists can teach us. I was, uh, during COVID, I think it was 2020, maybe 2021. How long did COVID last? Is it over? Will it ever be over? Um, we, we went on vacation to North Carolina. We were at the beach, and uh, we went to not the ocean side, but the, what do you call the other side? Sound. The sound. That's right. So the kids were little, and they didn't want to get pummeled by the waves. So we went to the sound, and just down the beach from us, there was uh, an Anglican pastor and a Baptist pastor. Only, only pastors were allowed on that beach. And it was interesting talking to uh, the Baptist guy. He, we were talking about, you know, COVID and what our churches were doing, and the Baptist guy said, I'll never forget this, he said, well, you know us Baptists, we want to obey, or we like, we like rules, and we like obedience. So for us, the more rules there are, the better. The more, and I just thought, you know, I would completely disagree with you about all the COVID rules, but this, this attitude is really interesting because the Lutheran attitude towards the law is kind of just the opposite. Oh man, the commandments, they always accuse us, right? God's law is a mirror, and what does the mirror do? Shows us our sin. And when, you, when the mirror makes you look bad, what do you say? Stinking mirror? There's something wrong with the mirror, right? I need a different mirror. Um, so that, that sometimes seeps into us, like the problem is not here. The problem is in God's rules. Yes? Did you ask this Baptist pastor if they obey rules so much, why they split from each other every time they turn around? <laughs> no, I, I said... Um, that's an interesting attitude. I can't remember what I said to him. Yeah. So my point here is uh, we can learn something from the Baptists, which is this, um, the love of God's law. I mean, we would disagree with them on many things, um, but we can at least see there's something good about that. And it's the way that Abraham, it's the example of Abraham with Melchizedek. Um, why do we tithe? Why do we give our offerings to the church. So we expand the, expand the ministry. Okay, because we want, we want to participate in the kingdom of the growth of God's kingdom. Okay, now why do we give 10%? Why is, is that, a, did Jesus ever say, 
Now, when you set up the church, Peter, make sure that they all give 10%. Is that anywhere? Well, we have the example of Abraham, but my point here is sometimes people will say, well, that's an Old Testament thing, right? That in, in Israel, there was a law. In Israel, it was law. You have to give the tithe. And if you don't, I, we don't have any examples of this, but I wonder what would happen if you didn't give the tithe. I would imagine it was like the IRS, right? If you don't pay the IRS, they're knocking on your door, right? Excuse me, sir, you owe us. Okay, Um, so some people will say, see, Christians no longer live under the law of Israel. So we don't give we don't have to give a tithe. All right. Um, But this is this is actually a a helpful thing for us to think through. Go to Second Corinthians. Go to Second Corinthians eight and nine. Yeah, thanks. And, and really, we'll look at 2 Corinthians 9, starting at 6. Nine six. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, like Israel did. For God loves a cheerful giver. Who's our prime example of a cheerful tither? Abram, giving 10% to Melchizedek, okay? And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all times, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What's the good work Paul is writing about here? Generosity, right? And here, the collection is for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem, okay? So, um, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Okay, and it goes on talking that way. So if we say, well, we're not under the law anymore, so we don't have to give 10%, is that true? Yeah, it's true. We're not under any compulsion. But was Abraham under any law to give? No. He gave willingly, he gave freely. And the other thing that's helpful about giving 10%, so why do we suggest to people you should give 10%? What happens if you have no reference point for whether you should, how much you should give? Have any of you had this experience? You start thinking, okay, I want to, this is great, I get to participate. My life gets to contribute to the growth of God's kingdom. Everything that I do is being offered up there. This is a token of my whole life. I get, to, I get to help the gospel go out into the world, right? That's a good thing. I want to be part of that. Now, how much should I give? Well, what if I give 1%? Is that enough? No. Is 1% enough? No. Well, how, maybe if I give uh, 5%. Is 5% enough? Yeah. No. I don't know. What if I give 10%? What has Jesus given for me? His whole life. 
So what should I give for him, to him? My, I should give him everything, right? There is uh, something really nice about 10% because it saves you from the guilt of, I never know if I've given enough, right? Now, it can also happen, and I think what's more likely to be the way we think is, I don't want to give. <laughs> uh, and so 10% feels like a burden. But the, the Christians tithe, we give 10%, we ought to, give cheerfully, willingly, bountifully. And the 10% rule serves as an example to save you from the fear of, well, maybe I didn't give enough. Right? You can, it's kind of nice to have a rule there that you can say, well, Abram gave 10%. I'm going to give 10%. And if I can give more, I'll give more, but at least I'll give 10%. All right? Now, there's, there's something else that's really nice about giving, and we can see this in Abram. If you go back to chapter 8, look at chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, sorry. 2 Corinthians 8. Look at what it says in verse 10. This is all under the topic of Christian giving. And we, we apply this to congregational support, tithing. Look at what it says in verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This offering benefits who? You. He doesn't say this is to benefit the recipient of the gift. He says this benefits the giver of the gift. What good is giving <laughs> for me if I'm the giver? What does it force me to do? Obey, right? And that's good. It's good to learn obedience. It makes me happy. I get to be part of the work of the church. What did it, think of Abram. We'll put it out of our... It's hard to think about ourselves. It makes us nervous. So think about Abram. When Abram gives 10%, he gets poorer. Why is that good for Abram? What does it force him to do? Trust the Lord. He's going to get, he, I said I'd give you the land, I'll give you the land. Okay? And if the king of Sodom tries to give it to you, don't take it from him. Oh man, but sure would be nice to have the land. Sure would be nice to have all the stuff. So giving, giving, Christian giving and tithing is a discipline that builds faith. Think of it this way, how do your, how do your muscles grow? You got you to gotta work them out, right? You've got to break them down first. How does faith grow? How does it get stronger? Tested. Has to be tested, has to be tried. And the, um, there's a great passage in Malachi where God says, test me on this. Test me on tithing. If you tithe, I will take care of you. Test me. Right? God is like, Let's, just try me on it. Try it and see. And that this is, I, I say this not sarcastically or, or in any kind of uh, mean-spiritedness. This is, I've seen this in talking with people. When tithing is hard, it's because of that reason, right? It's because it's an act of faith. I have to trust that even if, you know, I, I could really use this 10% of my income. I've got bills to pay. I've got food that I need. It's hard to trust somehow, some way, I'll be taken care of. Uh, but God says, Test me. Try me. See what happens. 
Um, and so as a pastor, I wish I could say, you know, um, if you do this for six months, you're, in, you're going to get a raise at work. You're going to get, um, you know, suddenly somebody else is going to give you all kinds of things. I don't know what the future holds. All I can do is say, here's, here's the witness of God's word. Test me on it. Try me. And uh, one of the other nice things is there's plenty of other Christians who've found this. Have any of you found that tithing is at first really hard and then it turns out, hey, this was a good discipline for me, right? You're the, the example of your fellow congregation members helps you to say, you know what? They did it. I can do it. There was something good that God did for, you know, Ray Musgrave. This would be good for me too. Okay, uh, that's just sort of an aside there. I think that's a, a helpful thought process. We don't often, you know, we don't have a Sunday where we're saying, this Sunday is all about tithing. Because if we did, 10% of people would come, right? <laughs> we, we'd get a tithe of the congregation. So I have to surprise you. I have to ambush you with it every once in a while. Um, go back to Genesis 15, though. Reward, that's what we were talking about. The reward that God promises Abraham requires some faith, requires some patience. So, so far, Abram has not experienced, he has not seen what God promised. I'll give you the land, I'll make you great, all this stuff. Now in verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So Abram is concerned about which of these things, the land or his nation? Nation, right? Wherever we think of the nation, we want to think of what do we need to have a nation? We need offspring. Or the old, the old translations say seed. You need a seed. You need an heir. You need to become multiple. You've got to multiply. Okay? And recall here, what does the name Abram mean? I know we've mentioned this before, but it's good to refresh our minds. Big daddy. Big daddy. Exactly. Right? So when Abram's going around in the land, he's saying, my name's Abram. And they say, oh man, you must have a big family. How many kids do you have, Abram? I've got five. How many do you have? Abram says... Well, I had this nephew named Lot, but he took off. And so now, uh, when I die, everything's going to go to this foreigner in my house, Eleazar. I really like him. He's really great, but he's not actually my child. Oh, you don't have any kids? Your name, yeah, he's a joke, right? And in some ways, uh, he is going around, and his name is probably being laughed at by the other Canaanites. Did you hear about this guy, Abram? He's got no kids, right? His name means big father, and he has none. Yes? Well, he's going to have a son, but he doesn't have any yet. He's got to wait. Uh, in Abram, we see patient faith. Pa the example of Abram is the example of a patient faith that has to endure and has to wait. Okay, so Abram says, uh, God, how do I know that you're going to come through on this? Right? The Jews seek, what does St. Paul say? Jews seek signs. The Greeks love wisdom. The Jews always want 
a sign. And can you fault him for it? Is it wrong for Abram to say, uh, you know, a sign would be nice? <laughs> well, let's see if God, if, if, if God says it's wrong, then we'll say, you know, he should have just trusted. He should have just believed harder. Um, we'll see what God says here. So, uh, verse 3, is that where we left off? Abram said, behold, you've given me no seed, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Remember, all this is happening in a vision. God will come to Abram later, kind of in person, right, in the waking hours. This is happening all in a vision. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Okay, so first thing God does for Abram, asks for a sign, and what does God give him? Well, he gives him something. He gives him information. What kind, of, what kind of a speech is this? He doesn't give him a test. He doesn't give him a commandment. What does he give him here? This is a promise. Okay, so first thing, the first thing Abram gets is the word. Right? He gets a promise. You're very, you will have your very own son. Then he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, and we can imagine here, you got a picture, Abram, this is all happening in a vision, but it's like a, a waking dream. Abram walks outside, he looks up, okay, I'm supposed to look at the stars. So I go outside, I look at the stars, here's the promise. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So, a promise, and what would we call the second part of this? A little bit of a sign, right? We're going to see a fuller sign in a minute, but I want you to see this is how God always works. This is his, uh, what do we call it? His MO, his mode of operation. He gives words and signs. Word, sign, word, sign. What does God give? Words and signs. When you come to church, what, what are the two parts of the service? The word and the sacrament, the sign. The word and the sign. It's God, it, he's pretty consistent, right? Whatever you want to say about him, he's consistent. I, the Lord, do not change. I'm consistent, all right? Now, let's talk about this sign. So, when you look up at the stars, what do you see? Well, hold, okay, hold on. Let me write here. Number the stars. That's what Abram's told to do. So, Mike, what did you say? Point sources. When I look up at the sky, it, just, it might be pretty, but I don't see much, right? It's just a bunch of little dots. It looks like a dot-to-dot -dot page that nobody's connected. Now, what do you see, Sam? Constellations. constellations. What is a Constellation. It's a, it's a big dot to dot that's been connected, right? And which are the constellations that we know? Do any of you know any constellations? The Big Dipper, right? Taurus. You know the little, can you find the Little Dipper, Sue? You can. Okay, we're going to test you on it. We're all going to come to your house tonight. 
Yes, you've got to go to the country. And, and this is a good point to make. Think of Abram, right? Abram does not live in the city limits. Abram lives in the county. Abram lives where there is no light. So Abram, not just Abram, but the ancients, they, they saw the, the full sky, right? They didn't have any light pollution except maybe a few campfires. But even that, this is all happening in a vision. So Abram is seeing like the perfect night sky, okay? And he could see when he looked up there, maybe he's like Mike Lejeune and he just sees dots, or maybe he's like Sam, and he's, he got uh, some kind of teaching on the constellations, and he could say, oh, the Big Dipper. Uh, oh, Orion's Belt. Those are kind of the only two that I can find. I know the names of the other ones because my son told them to me, but I, can, I cannot for the life of me find Taurus or Sagittarius. Is there anybody in this room who has knowledge of the stars? Paul? I had an astronomy class. Yeah. And I love Orion. Yeah. And then Orion has the seven sisters. Right. The Pleiades. Yeah. I think that's astronomy. Yeah, yeah. Can you find them in the sky, though? I can find that. Yeah. I, I, it always cracks me up. Like Sam's in the, the books that we use for astronomy. You know, you look at them on paper and they, they connect the dots. And so you're like, oh, this will be easy. Look, at, I can find it right on the page. Then you go outside at night and you're like, which one is it? Okay, which one is it here? Now, the reason I'm going into all of this is, one, because constellations are interesting. But two, this word, when God tells Abram to number the stars, there's two kind of layers to the meaning of that word. The first one is count them up. Count the stars. Okay. And that's usually what we think of here. God is telling Abram, go outside, count them all up, and if you're able to count them, that's how many children you're going to have. Okay? I think that's part of it. The second kind of nuance to this word number is to evaluate. Evaluate the stars. And for that, you need to, I think you'd have to assume that God is saying something about not just the number of the stars, but something more about the constellations, all right? And uh, this gets us into a, a discussion of where did the constellations come from, right? How did anybody ever get the idea that the Big Dipper is a bear, Ursa Major? The Greeks. The Greeks, right? Where did they get that, that idea? Whoever looked up at the stars and said, oh, it's a man chasing a dragon. Would any of you ever think that, looking at the stars? They just look like a bunch of dots. So whose idea was it that the stars are actually constellations and that they, they might mean something? Go to Job. Look in the book of Job. We've got to look at Job for this. Job 38. Job 38. I'll write it on the board here. Job 38, 31 to 33.
There's a couple other passages like this, but this is probably the best one. Okay? Job 38, 31 to 33. Who would read that for us? Go for it, Paul. Through what verse? 31 to 33. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Zoroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Okay, now, who do we know the book of Job? Who is talking here? Who's saying this? God is. Who's he talking to? Job. Job. And he's asking him all kinds of questions. And the point here is, you don't know the answer to any of these questions, Job. You thought that you could question me. I'm going to question you. And the answer to all these questions is... I don't know. Maybe so. <laughs> no. Can you, can you control the stars, Job? What's the answer to that? No. No. And the implication is... Who can? God. So who built the heavens? God did. Who put the stars in their places? God did. Who arranged them so that there is Ursa Major and Ursa Minor and Sagittarius and all these things? God did. Now, maybe some of them are just made up, right? Maybe the Greeks were like, see, that's a dragon. And, you know, everybody else is like, I don't see it. Um, But I think that at least this verse would show us, and there's a couple others that we're not going to look at for time consideration, that it's God who puts the constellations out there. Even in Genesis, Genesis, right. That's the first place it says that there's a sign. Yes, yeah. Okay, good. So Max said this is what he says in Genesis. Go to Genesis 1. We'll see a little bit more uh, of the evaluation of the stars. Yep, 1, 14. Genesis 1, verse 14. Here's what it says. God said, this is the fourth day, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So why did God put the stars out there? Signs, seasons, days, years. It's a big clock, exactly. God put the stars up there to be a clock. And it's not just so you know, like, well, it's 1014 and 20 seconds right now. The kind of clock that the heavens give us is a festival clock, times and seasons. So in, I, I've said this in sermons before, but how would you know when was the time for Passover? When was the time for the Feast of Weeks? When was the time for the Feast of Booths? The moon, right? The moon was the, um, it was the light in the sky that governed the worship of Israel. But God is saying here, this is the function of the stars. They're pretty. They're out there to remind you how small you are, right? And to be pretty and bright and all that. But they actually have this function of controlling worship. So now, 
have that in your mind and think about what God is saying to Abram. Go out and evaluate the stars. Your seed is going to be like the stars. Well, what's the purpose of the stars according to Genesis? They're there for festival time. And the festival is not just when do we get to eat a lot of food, but it's for worship. So what's God saying to Abraham about his offspring, his seed? Your son is going to govern the festivals. Okay, let's keep reading in Genesis. What else do they do? Verse 15, let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light, which one's the greater one? Yeah, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So what do the stars do? They mark time, festivals, and they govern things. They're rulers, right? This is why on our flag, we don't have one in here. What's on our flag? The stars and bar. No, the stars and stripes. Right? Stars and bars is different. Um, but it's interesting, isn't it, that when you look at flags of nations, there's almost always some kind of a star or what's on the Japanese flag? The sun. What's on the, uh, those Middle Eastern countries? The, the crescent moon. Why do, people, why do the nations put sun, moon, and stars on their flags? It's built into creation, right? Though these are the symbols of kingship, the symbols of ruling. So what's God telling Abram about his children? Sure, they're going to be many, but they're also go- it's also not just quantity. It's the quality of Abraham's offspring. He's going to be what kind of a son? He's going to be a starry son. He's going to be like the stars. He's going to be like the constellations. Okay? Now, when you think of this first one, the many, who are, what's the fulfillment of, of that? If God is just telling Abraham, you're going to have a lot of kids, who's, what's the fulfillment of that promise? Church. The church, even before the church, though, all, the, all those you know, descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, then the 12 sons become the tribes, and the tribes multiply, and there's all kinds of tribes, or, or there's all kinds of numbers. If you wanted to know how many sons everybody had, what book would you read to figure out the number of the children of Israel? Leviticus. Numbers. numbers. Yeah, it, that's, a, that's a softball, right? If you want to know the number, you'll read the book of Numbers. And when you read all those censuses, sensi, census, sensi, when you read all those, all those things, you get some really big numbers. Um, and we're not going to go into that this morning because I think we'd all fall asleep reading all those names and numbers. But there's probably in there some connection, those numbers probably have some connection to the stars and the heavenly bodies. And I can't figure all that out because I'm like Mike. When I look up at the stars, I just see points of light. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. And so, and you can say, well, I don't believe in any of that. That's stupid. But it's still, like, it's still real. Sure. Whether you want to accept it or not. So if you use that as Israel, the nation of Israel, that God said, yeah, they are these ones, look to them as this is my chosen people. And it doesn't matter if you say, yeah, I don't want to believe that. It's still the same. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, let's take, you, you made two really good points there. The first one is, um, this, how did people abuse the stars? What did the Babel, if you know about like the Babylonians, think of those magi. The magi are looking at the stars and somehow they figure out the king of the Jews has been born. Okay? Now, that's because the Babylonians thought that the stars could predict the future. Okay? What does it say in Genesis 1? It says that the stars set the seasons and the time of festivals. Okay? It doesn't say they predict the future. So the stars do have this function of telling time and keeping track of time, and you're right. Like you can, when it's close to springtime, you need to plant your crops, right? Um, and when you live through the seasons and the cycles, you start to associate, oh, look, now... Um, when Orion is, in, Orion is in the night sky, what's the one in the summer sky? It's the triangle, right? The summer triangle. You, you can start to tell the seasons by the stars. So I'm sure that the ancient cultures all said, when this constellation comes up, now we need to plant. Um, you still have some semblance of that. Does anybody use an almanac? Does anybody plant by the, by the almanac? Marvin, did you ever plant your crops with the almanac? Yeah, so that's a leftover. That's kind of a remnant of planting according to the signs, okay? Um, now, the, the ancient cultures took it a step further and said, the stars tell everything. And if you just know the mystery of the stars, you can predict everything, okay? So that's the, that's the abuse of the thing. But what Catherine says is, I think, helpful. Instead of being obsessed with the stars, Abram's offspring are the one who you should look to, or the ones who the ancient world, the Babylonians, the, the Greeks, the Egyptians, you should look at what's going on in Israel. And what's the whole point of Israel? This is going to get to your second question. Yeah, chosen because God likes to play favorites and he hates everybody else? Yes. What's this all about? The seed. So you got to pay attention to Israel so you know where the Messiah comes from. All right? So now we don't look to Israel for guidance just because they're Israelis, just because they're the descendants of Abraham. We look to the offspring. Jesus is um, Israel reduced to one, right? Jesus is the ultimate Israel. He is. Uh, the fulfillment of all this stuff. So what is the role of um, the people of Israel in the grand council of God? It's to bring the Messiah into the world. 
And when the Messiah comes into the world, now we look to the Messiah. Okay? And the Messiah is, according to the flesh, descended from Israel. But as far as saying there's still some um, special significance to Israel in and of itself, that, that um, function of Israel got rolled up into Jesus. And I'll, I'll show you a good example of this. Go to Galatians. I, I see you. Put your, just, you got to wait because I'm in the middle of a thought. And if I don't go here now, I'll forget to go here later. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 16 is kind of the key passage. Catherine, will you read that one for us? Do you have it there? Okay, so... Paul, in Paul's mind, all of this is about the one offspring of Abraham. Now, we, we, could, we could say, well, offspring is a collective term, right? So, um, you know, the one and the many are combined in the idea of offspring. But Paul is pretty insistent here. We, we weren't talking, God wasn't talking about many, many, many. He was talking about one particular offspring. So if we apply that here, which of these two ideas of numbering the stars seems to be prominent in Galatians 3? He's not thinking about quantity. You're going to have so many children. He's thinking about the kind of offspring that Jesus will be. So I would, um, to go back to your question, Catherine, I would say that um, I agree with the first part of your statement that, you know, the, um, what the ancient cultures looked for in the stars, they should have looked for. God was telling Abraham, your kids are going to be that. Your descendants will be that. And Jesus is the one who is the, the revelation of God's will. What's God's will for me? Look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Okay. Um, but then what is the ongoing significance of Israel? Well, the ongoing significance of Israel is only concerned with, are they in Christ? And here's what I mean. If you keep reading here, go down to the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 29. If you are Christ's, if you are of Christ... Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So you are, the church is, like the stars. You are starry people. Just like Christ is the star, he's the man from heaven, right? He's like the stars. The church now is supposed to fulfill that role. So if I wanted, if I was going to say, who, you know, I'm a, a ruler of a nation and I need a good advisor, do I look to the Jews or should I get somebody from the church? 
Well, you guys know what I'm going to say, of course, right? Um, But that really is part of this whole thing, that what the Israelites were in the Old Testament, the church is in the New Testament. We are the, the offspring of Abraham, okay? Thoughts on that or questions with the stars here? Yes. Well, I've spoken to my Jewish friend that we play trivia with, and I love him dearly. But it's like, you know, when, when Jesus has come up in conversation, it's like, uh, you're God. No. Yeah. He's everybody's God. Sure. But, but the Jews rejected him. And that's my understanding is a lot of these, I call them Calvinist churches, still look for what's happening with the Jews when that's passe, that's gone. Jesus is the yeah, the, we want to. I, I, I found it helpful because there are there's so much connected to Israel, Israel, Israel in the Old Testament. There's all these promises about Israel, and so seeing uh, what I said before, Jesus is Israel. He's like the embodiment of the whole nation. Everything that Israel was gets kind of compacted into Jesus. He is the temple. He is the priest. He is the king. He's he's everything. And if I yeah, reduced to one. Or if you, like, um, if you like a liquor analogy better, he's 200 proof Israel, right? He's pure all the way. Um, and if I try to figure out some way to bypass Jesus and get Israel apart from the Messiah, now I've, I'm kind of going down, a, that's a dead end, right? It's, that's zero proof. That's a, you know, <laughs> that's a that's a virgin daiquiri. <laughs> that's a yeah, right. That's a dispensational view. Is that there's still something there? Yes. No. I, all I'll say this: um, Sam is asking me about the stars here. Um, he he takes an astronomy class in the in our homeschool, so that's why he's all interested in the stars. If you look in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33, this is where we'll end today. You have a description of the nation of the tribes. So Jacob blesses his sons at the end of Genesis, and Moses blesses Israel, the tribes, at the end of Deuteronomy. And if you know your constellations, if you know your zodiac, something kind of we'll just say it's interesting, because I don't know what to make of it. There are a lot of overlaps between the the constellations like Taurus is the bull. Um, Leo, is anybody a Leo? Do you know your signs? Sue, you're good on the stars, okay? This is concerning to me, Sue. Um, (laughs) Leo is the lion, right? And guess which tribe is compared to a lion? Judah. So you start to see there's, now what do we make of all this? I'm not entirely sure, but there's more than, it's more than just one connection between the constellations and the tribes of Israel. And that, that at least, you know, here's all I would kind of, the only weight I would put on that is it makes me think more about God is telling Abraham not just how many his descendants are going to be, but the qual- what kind of descendants. They're going to be like the stars. Jesus is the, he's the star man. And now that I say it that way, what is Jesus called in the book of Revelation? He's the bright morning star. That, you know, QED. There we go. All right, let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the stars that you've placed above us. We thank you for the light that brightens the evening. And we thank you even more for your son, Jesus Christ, who is not a mystery, um, but who has revealed your will and your word and above all your grace and your mercy. We pray that uh, his blessing would be on us, that we would be faithful uh, in our calling to be sons and daughters of, of Abraham. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.